what's what's really cool, we, we spoke a few weeks ago about the kingdom. We spoke about collaboration and churches working together. I'm proud to work alongside Rob and Hope Church. Um, I'm proud to consider them good friends. Uh, there's a lot of churches this morning um, that are kind of isolated and kind of on an island, kind of to themselves. And I, I'm proud to say uh, that we have other churches in this area that we get to do ministry with. So I hope that you would welcome Rob this morning, and we're going to take a look at Acts 16. Thank you, David. That's a great, really nice introduction. Oh. I thought he was going to introduce me and say, and to get ready for our series on brokenness, I've invited the most broken person I've ever met in my life to come speak for us today. So thank you for being much kinder, David. i got to tell you a funny story, mainly because the people aren't here. Uh, last time I spoke, I was here, and there were some visitors that were here, first-time guests. And the, a couple weeks later, they ended up coming and being guests at Hope Church. Little did they know that me and David switch back and forth. David fills in for me, and I fill in for him sometimes. And so the week that they decided to be a guest speaker, David was there to preach. It was super awkward. I literally ran them down and, uh, before they could leave early and engaged them in conversation. And I said, and you've met David Barton, right, the pastor at Creekside Church? They did not end up sticking at our church either. I just love making awkward situations happen. So very thankful. So just so you know, if you think you're going to come to Hope Church and get away with it, you are dreadfully wrong. We have people that come from other churches, and I tell them, oh, yeah, your pastor sometimes speaks here, and they will never show up again. So very nice to be here <laughs> this morning, and I do remember faces. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Uh, when David asked me to speak through this one, he is a daring man. I didn't realize your sermon series that's starting up so close to a due date of your first child. Wow, that's, that's daring. I, uh, when we found out that we were pregnant with my son, my son just turned two the end of April. His name is Rock, R-O-C-K. And... He was, I found out, and we found out the due date, but we didn't want to tell people because we were actually just in the initial stages of launching a church plant, and we didn't want our church plant, we didn't want to be known as, oh, that's the pastor who's having their first child. So we literally didn't announce it to anybody, even our families, until my wife was 17 weeks pregnant, 17, almost 18 weeks pregnant. And, but when we first found out we were pregnant, I said to a guy who um, is my associate, Will Davis, and I said, hey, I want you to get practice preaching through series. Uh, so I want you to do a five-week series through Jonah that you can start planning now, and we'll do it in July. Then we found out we were pregnant, and I just said, oh, are you going to be able to do that Jonah series in May? Because our due date was like May 5th or something, and um, David's finding out due dates don't matter at all. And he said, yeah, but wasn't it supposed to be in July? And I said, yeah, but let's do it in May. And he said, okay. And he never asked any more questions. And then when they found out we were pregnant, it was ready for five weeks. But we had a joke that was if our son was born and he was going to be like me, he was going to show up awkwardly early. And if he was like my wife, he'd be very late. And so sure enough, he showed up on a Saturday afternoon very quickly. Um, and I had, to call, I had to call Will and say, hey, you're preaching tonight. And he goes, I'm not ready. I'm literally at the beach. On church on Saturday nights, that means you get to go to the beach before you go to church. And so I said, uh, I said yeah, I think the baby's here. Tab is in denial that she's in labor. But I know that she is and that baby's coming today, you're preaching tonight. So sure enough, he showed up two weeks early, born on a Saturday afternoon on a week that I had no coverage. I had all the rest of the time covered, and he showed up at the most inconvenient time 
possible. So I keep telling David, I'm ready to preach any Sunday morning you need me. You need to take time off. So please reinforce that idea uh, with David as well. Anyways, we're in Acts chapter 16. I absolutely love this chapter. But if I was in Acts 15 or Acts 18, I would still say I absolutely love this chapter. As a church planner, you have to love the book of Acts. And really, as anybody that is involved in a church, you have to love the book of Acts. Now, I am also somebody who loves history and I love studying culture at that time. So I have some just beginning information for you and I wanna give you a couple resources. Right now, we live at a time in a day and age where there are more resources for you to be able to do your own personal in-depth Bible study than there ever has been before. So I'm gonna give you an app. If you have a smartphone, a tablet, any of these, you can literally, if you have access to YouTube, you will be able to gain so much knowledge on your own personal Bible study. But I'm just going to give you one resource that I have absolutely loved, and it is called Bible Maps. If you look in your app store, whatever it is, Bible Maps, and it's by uh, Plowboy, P-L-O-U-G-H-B-O-Y.org. And it is a, you read a chapter of scripture, and anywhere that there is a people group or a city that is mentioned, there is a link and there's a map on the right-hand side, and whenever you click that link, it gives you all sorts of information, archaeological digs that were done, uh, what these people did. And so now when you're reading the Old Testament, the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Amalekites, all of a sudden those now have meaning because you've been able to read about them and who they were and where they founded and archaeological digs and what they found in these archaeological digs. But going through the book of Acts, it is phenomenal, and it gives you tons of background, and it gives you all sorts of information that you have right there. So Bible maps, I highly encourage you to get that, even if you're getting it right now. But we picked up with uh, coming out now in chapter 16, they've began what we call Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Paul has gone on his first missionary journey, returned back to Antioch, and he gets there, and then he says to Barnabas, hey, let's go and uh, let's go just visit the churches that we had started already. And then they, they leave. So pick up with me in Acts chapter 16. We're going to read the first five verses. I like to talk a lot. If you know me, you know that is very true. And so I'm going to interrupt myself quite a bit, I promise, and I apologize in advance. So starting in Acts chapter 16, let's read the first five verses. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that he had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So we have Timothy, who is a young man, whose mother is Jewish and whose father is Greek. That doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to us, but there was an incredible uh, racism, if you will. There was uh, a bias, a prejudice. Most Greeks, most people in the Roman culture did not care for the Jews. Uh, they were annoying. They worshiped one God. They had infiltrated every city in the Roman Empire. That's why as you read through Acts, it says, and it gives very specific details, and these were Hellenistic Jews, and these were Jews from Antioch, or Cyrene, or Cyprus. And as you go through, you keep finding these Jews in all of these different cities all over the world. Uh, not too much later than this was the falling of the Jerusalem, when the Romans finally had had enough 
the Jews kept rebelling, kept rebelling. At one point, they had, the Romans had already kicked out all the Jews out of Rome, where there was believed to be thousands and thousands. Uh, just before they marched into Jerusalem, uh, in Caesarea, where we read a lot in Acts that happened very early on, which was the Roman capital in the uh, Israel, Israel district, if you will, uh, they killed over 27,000 Jews in just a matter of, I believe, like a week in history. Uh, so there was this huge tension. On the flip side, the Jews didn't like them. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. They didn't have any business. So we have this uh, very mixed marriage, if you will, a Greek and a Jew who have married. Uh, but the Jew is also not, as most Jews would describe her, as a true Jew because she is a believer in Jesus. So not only has she married a Greek, which was against what probably her family wanted, her, everybody in that family, but she also now has given up the Jewish faith to become a believer in Christ, which Christ, of course, was killed on a cross, which is the most shameful death that you could die. When people at that time had family members who would be crucified, they just didn't talk about that person ever existing to avoid the conversation of them dying on a cross. And now you have people who are talking about Jesus dying on a cross joyfully. And it just didn't make sense in this culture at that time. So Paul meets Timothy and he says, oh, this is perfect. He now can relate to two different cultures. And so Timothy takes Timothy, or Paul takes Timothy, and he circumcises him so that he can have an in, if you will, with the Jewish congregations that they met. If you notice, and we'll see here in a second, Paul, when he would go to a city, he would normally find people that believed in God. It was usually started in synagogues, it started where Jewish believers met, and that is how he would introduce the gospel to them. He would say, oh, you believe in God. Sometimes he would meet people who had formerly been uh, followers of John the Baptist. So you believe in God. Or, oh, you believe in Jesus, here's what Jesus did, now you can believe in him, put your faith in him, and start this new life. So he now has a man with him, who I'm sure the outside world viewed, and we kind of get a picture of that just in this short passage, everybody knew about this kid, and he seemed to be of good standing, as it says, but he was also odd, because he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. But Paul, as God has done throughout history, as Paul experienced himself, God uses those who least expect it. God used those that are least expected, and so Paul takes Timothy with him. He circumcises him not because, and we see this again with Paul, he didn't do it because he thought it was necessary for salvation. He did it as a cultural thing so that Timothy would now have a voice in synagogues because his mother was Jewish, therefore he carries a Jewish line, whereas a lot of the other people traveling with Paul at this time didn't have that. It was really only Paul and Silas were the two true Jewish people in this journey. But if you notice the main emphasis, and this is how Paul started out, if you go back to chapter 15, verse 36, he says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul has his vision set back in 1536. This is what we're going to do. This is what this journey is going to entail. Me and my good buddy Barnabas, the encourager, this guy who's just a phenomenal person in biblical uh, history, who's always there for somebody, me and him are just going to go on another trip. And we're going to go on another trip, and we're just going to encourage the churches that we started. Well, it doesn't start off. Barnabas says, let's bring Mark. And he goes, nope, I have no use for Mark. He left us when we needed him most. And Barnabas says, well, I'm going to go with Mark. He's like, oh, man, this is already not going like I had hoped. So he takes Silas, another incredible man that Paul and Silas go. But they also had, and they believe this is where Luke, the writer of Acts, joins them on this second missionary journey. And they probably had a couple other men traveling with them as they were going to these churches. Well, they're just going to go encourage churches. They're going to see them strengthen and their numbers grow daily, which is where we leave off in verse 5. Let's pick it up in verse 6. 
And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. By the way, these are fun words to pronounce. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to, pre- to preach the gospel there. Paul had his plans laid out. He and Barnabas were going to go on this missionary journey and encourage people. It ends up being him and Silas, along with others, including this guy, Timothy. And then the places that they were planning going says they were stopped by the Spirit. I don't know what that means. But something, the Holy Spirit had stopped them, and now Paul was going to be going in a different direction. The the original plan just got scrapped. And now he's listening to the Holy Spirit. And that's so important even for us today. Because we can make our own plans, and we do basically every day. We make our own plans, we make our own agenda that we want to follow through with. But are we being sensitive to what God is telling us to do? We have calendars that really run our life. We have all of these things that run our life. We have all the things that we think that we need to do. But do we take time every day to say, God, what do you want? What shall I do that you want? Don't use the word shall. I don't know how that slipped in there. What do you want me to do that you are asking of me? The whole missionary journey changes at this point. But Paul wasn't so set on his goal that he overlooked what God had for them. And I think that's a very important lesson, I know for me, and I'm hoping that as I share it, it's good for you too, but don't let your goals run over God's plan. Don't prioritize your goals over what God has for you. Now, where Paul was traveling, as we get into this more, where Paul was traveling was further into a non-Jewish culture. Again, most of the time he would go to a city, and he would find the Jewish population, because Jewish populations were in every city, and all cities, basically, you had to have a population of 10 Jews. As long as you had 10 Jewish men, you could have a synagogue there. So he's going into Philippi now, uh, which is a capital city. And Philippi was a very, very uh, special city. And we kind of get the hint, as we're going to read through this, that the city of Philippi did not care much for Jews at all. They did not like Jews at all. And upon reading this the first couple times, and when I was going through college and seminary, I never really picked up on that. But then as you read closer, you start to realize certain words that Luke uses to describe this situation. The situation would have made sense when Luke wrote it, because chances are the tension was so hot when Luke wrote this book that everybody understood. Oh yeah, well they were Jews, they probably deserved that. Or they were Romans, or they were Greeks, they deserved what they came to them. There was an incredible prejudice built up in the heart of these people right away. Now, Philippi, again, it was a very unique, it was called what was called a colonial status, meaning that because the city of Philippi willingly handed themselves over to the Roman Empire, as you'll see in a couple weeks, Ephesus was the same way, Uh, Thessalonica was the same way, they were very, the Roman Empire was very gracious to this city. The Romans, again, were known for their incredible military strength and power. They did what they wanted, when they wanted, to who they wanted, and they always imposed their will on everyone. So when a city just gave up right away and said, hey, we are yours, they had rewards for them. It's one of the geniuses of the political system that was the Roman Empire. And so what they did is Philippi uh, was exempt from any taxation to the Roman Empire. So it was a very wealthy city. 
uh, anybody who was living there was given Roman citizenship, which is a huge deal, which brought with it an incredible amount of opportunity, an incredible amount of rights that you would have as a citizen of the Roman Empire, and we'll see Paul use this again. And it was also allowed to have its own autonomous government, meaning that they could continue to have the government that they set up in place, and Rome kind of were just hands off. Now, along with that came with, if you mess up, we, the Romans, will take back over. If you get too big of a head, we will come in and we will hand down justice. And so Philippi was set up differently than most cities. They had two magistrates who basically ran the city. These two people would come to decisions together, and they had other people in the city that were uh, elders of the city, if you will. So keep that in the back of your mind. And now we're actually going to read 11 through 15. So he has this vision, and then we jump into chapter 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia came from a place, the Thyatira, which was known for purple linens. That was ex very expensive. So something that we get just learning really quickly from Lydia is she was probably very wealthy. She probably was very well-to-do. She had a big enough house in the city of Philippi where she could house everybody on Paul and Silas's missionary team. And she convinced them to stay, which was probably a little more difficult, again, for Paul and Silas. They were Jews. It appears Lydia was a Greek. Although she believed in God, it was looked down on for Jews to stay with Greeks. But they did. They said they, she was very convincing, and they went to stay at her house. Now, one thing that you get from this passage is it doesn't appear to be any practicing Jewish men in the entire city. There was just a couple women that would go out to the river, more than likely so they could do the ritual cleansing that would have been through their uh, Jewish history, Jewish tradition, so that they could spend time in prayer. And Paul has to go outside the city to find people who believe in God. And it's just a couple women. And again, women, very looked down on in the Roman culture. They didn't have many rights. They didn't have, uh, they were looked down on as opposed to men. But see how Paul is used by God to go and he starts with women. When we were planning our church, I would always laugh because I said, I have an army of single women that I'm planning this church with. Uh, and it was just like a lot. But I think we can get very lost in culture because I think we see Paul using women in such a unique way to help get this church started in Philippi, even starting in Lydia's house. And Lydia was also listening to the Holy Spirit. She didn't hold back. Anything that she had, anything she could say, well, I worked for this. Look at what I've done. I've amassed this wealth. She said, it's all yours. Whatever you need to make sure people hear the gospel, it is all yours. Use my house. Use my money. Use whatever it is. It's all God's. So we have a very wealthy woman named Lydia, and they're now in the city, and then things get really good. Pick up in chapter, uh, verse 16. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. 
As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, and I love this part, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. That's the first accusation. These men are Jews. That is a big count against them. And we start to get a picture of what was happening in this city. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, I lied. I'm not going to go through the rest of the chapter. Too much to explain here. Notice they only grabbed. Now remember, it is Paul and Silas. Timothy and Luke and probably more Greeks or Hellenistic Jews that are with them, meaning that they adopted Greek customs, they dressed it as Greeks, they dressed it as Romans. But look at the accusation. These men are Jews. And even though there were several men in this group, they only grabbed the two Jews. <clears throat> and they drag the two Jews into the street and they tear their clothes off and they're already being beaten. The crowd just mobs them immediately. And then the magistrates, who you think are bringing order, say, hey, let's just tear their clothes off and beat them with rods. And everyone's like, great. And they take rods, and they literally go about beating Paul and Silas. Only the two Jewish men. The rest of the group were not touched. The two Jewish men were stripped and beaten with rods in front of everybody and put in jail. But did you also notice what happened there? It didn't seem that many people had a problem with them until it affected their money. As soon as their wallet was touched, and you're going to see this throughout the rest of Acts, Paul comes in, people convert, everyone's like, well, that's not a big deal. Again, the Romans had many gods, the Greeks had many gods, but as soon as it touched their income, as soon as it touched their money, let's kill them. Let's beat the living snot out of them in the street. They drag Paul out in one city, and they stone him and leave him for dead. I love Paul's response. He gets up the next morning, goes back in, and keeps preaching. But as soon as their money's touched, that's a problem. Do not touch my money. Luckily, that's never a problem in churches today. <laughs> Nobody minds us giving and giving and giving. All right, let's pick it back up. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And this is, again, why I love Paul. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens understand that that weight, when he says we are Roman citizens, that was a punch in the gut to everybody who had wronged them. Because what they had done to a Roman citizen, including the magistrates, could be punishable by death. And have thrown us in prison, and do not now, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What an odd story. <laughs> it does sound familiar. So we have a couple points that I just want to go over. When, when David first asked me to preach through the entire chapter of Acts 16, I said, okay, I only need about four and a half hours to do that. That's no problem. So I'm going to really try to keep it below two because I want to respect your Sunday morning. But a couple points I want to kind of go into that I think very much apply to us. And so I'm going to kind of give you the point, if you're taking notes, and then explain it a little bit. The first thing, and this is saying that we say a lot at Hope Church, we want everybody to constantly have this in the forefront of their brain. That when people start repeating it back, then you know you get it. Number one, the gospel is humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. The gospel is humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. From Jesus coming down from earth, going back to the Old Testament, everything that you see Jesus asking of us, everything that Jesus did in his life on earth, including just coming to earth, let alone being sacrificed, in Philippians uh, 2, chapter, one, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we see Paul or Jesus left the glory and splendor of sitting with God in heaven to come to earth. That was more of a sacrifice than we will ever experience. And he did it because he loved you and he wanted to put what was best for you, even to the point of dying a horrible, shameful death on the cross covered in your and my sins. And he did that for you and me. Everything that Jesus did was not what we would have, like, we would have perceived that a king of glory would do. Why? Because the gospel is about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. And I think sometimes we can get those very mixed up. We think that, well, if I'm following God, things should be comfortable, and I should be esteemed. And that doesn't fit in in most places around the world. In so many countries, and people that David and I have been able to interact with through the Cyprus Project, and you hear about these countries where as soon as you accept Christ, that means you lose your job, you'll probably lose your wife and kids, you'll lose your family, uh, when you are baptized, a lot of times there are people waiting at the shores of the water to kill you when you come out of the water from being baptized. That's humility. That's sacrifice. And that's what we see Jesus doing, and that's what we see Paul doing. That's what we see everybody in that missionary journey doing, is they knew that people had to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and no matter what happened to them in the meantime, it was worth it. It was more than worth it. 
So Paul was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, go where he knew it wasn't going to be comfortable going. I'm sorry, you want me to go to Philippi? They hate Jews. And I'm Jewish. Okay, God, I'll do what you want. While he's being beaten in the streets, I'm sure he was thinking, I knew this was a bad idea. I knew this wasn't going to go well. But there he is doing it. And he didn't even say it right away. They're in prison. And while he's in prison, he's not even saying, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. He and Silas are just singing. And an earthquake happens. And they convince the other prisoners not to leave. And they keep singing. Incredible peace and joy. By the way, the reason they weren't sleeping is when you were in these shackles and cuffs, they put you in a very uncomfortable sitting up position so your legs would fall asleep and become excruciatingly painful and your arms were stretched out. You could not sleep. It was an incredible form of torture that they were doing. Again, Roman citizens did not endure torture. And at any time, they could have used their citizenship to get out of this mess. And they waited. And they sang. And they were at peace. And they were, had joy to the point where other soldiers or other prisoners are listening to them. The earthquake happens. The reason that the jailer was about to kill himself was because of the torture that if you let prisoners out under your guard, they made a very big example of you. The tortures that they would do if you were supposed to be guarding prisoners and they got free were horrendous. And so for him, killing himself was the easiest way to get out of that. So Paul literally saves his life just by not leaving. And he says, whoa, 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 hey, before you plunge that sword through your belly, we're still here. And because of Paul's sacrifice of staying there, this jailer and his entire household and eventually the city is dramatically changed to the glory of God. Secondly, the gospel breaks barriers and causes reconciliation. The gospel breaks barriers and causes reconciliation. Again, there was this huge amount of bias. There was this huge amount of racism, if you will. There was a huge amount of prejudice towards other people, groups that were different than themselves. On both sides, the Jews didn't like the Greeks, the Greeks didn't like the Jews. There was Gentiles and Jews. So both sides were really at fault. What ends up happening? The gospel intercedes and breaks down all of these barriers that were put there by man and causes them to come together. Look at the three, the three first converts, it seems. The first is a wealthy Greek woman who believes in Judaism who ends up accepting Christ as her Savior and welcomes them into her home. And I'm thinking as a church planner, sweet, we got a wealthy one. That's going to help. The next convert is a slave girl who's demon-possessed. The least likely convert. And Paul knows her because she is annoying the snot out of him, following him around. And that's what Paul says when he's fully annoyed. He turns around and says, out. The demon leaves. And that girl appears, follows Jesus. And you're like, okay, now we got this wealthy woman and a slave girl. Slaves were not considered humans at this time. They were less than human. It's not exactly who you wanted. I'm sure she's like, oh man, I'm sure she's got all sorts of problems we're going to deal with now. They welcomed her. And then the third household that is turned to God is a Roman jailer. Jailers were not good people. They were battle-tested, battle-proved, 
no heart, no soul when it came to dealing with prisoners. The Romans were masters of torture. The whole idea of crucifixion is something that they developed to think of the worst possible way to kill someone. And the jailers were the ones who were the designers of this. These were terribly gruesome, brutal, just totally no compassion whatsoever. And that's their third convert. Across all spectrums of classes. Across all spectrums of race. And it was the weirdest group of people you could ever start a church with. And I had some weirdos with me. And I love them to death. God uses those who are least expected. Over and over and over and over and over again. Through the entire Bible, we see God uses those least expected. For his glory so that he gets all the glory. But just a reminder for us that a church community should be continually reflected of cultural barriers being broken. And I know I'm saying that to a crowd, I believe, of all white people. How are we breaking down cultural barriers, not just in our church, because something I constantly tell people is your church is reflective of your dining room table. And if there's only certain types of people at your dining room table, then there's only going to be certain types of people in your church. So how are you allowing the gospel to so affect your heart that you are going out of your way, maybe doing something that you've never done before, maybe doing something that family members, maybe even the past you would never recommend you doing because those people are different. Those people speak a different language. Those people aren't like me, and it's just, and we use these excuses. And what we're really saying is the gospel isn't powerful enough. That God isn't powerful enough. That my weakness is more powerful than God's power when we allow our weaknesses to win out. So how are we going into our communities and changing culture because of the gospel at work in our lives and just using our living room or our dining room table to do so? The church community should be continually reflective of culture barriers being broken down by the love, hope, forgiveness, peace, and joy that only exist in knowing Christ. How can we say that we are a reflection of Christ when we can't even love our neighbors or the people down the street or people from that neighborhood? Third, the gospel defeats fear. There's three different things that we really see used here. That is racism, classism, and a sense of nationalistic pride. All three of these are based on fear. God is not a God of fear. Racism is fear-based because it's somebody different. And most of the time that you interact with racism, the people say, well, what if they... What if they do this? What if this ends up happening to us? What if they do this to me? There are no grounds for it. But it's that fear that Satan loves to put in our heads that we can now just say, well, what if? That's why I don't do this. It's it's what if. It's completely, racism is born out of fear. What if they retaliate because of what happened in the past? What if these people move to my neighborhood? racism, plain and simple. Secondly, classism is fear-based. The saying, they don't belong here. And we view money and position as a means of protecting ourselves from people that we don't want to be around. And that's classism. They may end up looking like us, so that kind of leaves out the racism part of it, but because they're a different class than us, or we're trying to get out of the class that we're in, so we're no longer associated with these people, 
is classism, and there's no room for that in the gospel message. How are we so hard trying to focus on our comfort and privilege and saying that we're representing Christ who is humility and sacrifice? They don't exist together. We have to constantly be stepping outside of our comfort zones because that is how God does his work. And third, there is this sense of nationalistic pride used to cause fear. Roman citizens were very proud of their citizenship. And whenever you start to see this, when their money gets taken, the first thing they do is, hey, they're against Rome. And the city responds immediately. As soon as you say you're against Rome, that human being no longer matters. And they drag him into the streets and beat him. And then the magistrates come and say, no, no, no. Strip him and hit him with rods. That hurts worse. Those people are no longer humans. They lose their humanity. Why? Because people know how to use nationalistic pride as a sense of building fear into their people to accomplish tasks that end up being completely anti-gospel, completely against the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a leader who did this. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Adolf Hitler. After World War I, Germany was so stripped of everything other countries came in and just completely stripped Germany of any power that they had. And the Germans were very proud people. If you've ever read anything by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he explains it fantastically. And at the time, Germany had many wonderful, great theologians that are still used in seminaries all the time. Germany was this center of theology. But Hitler knew that if he could get people built around being proud Germans built around being part of a secret military that they weren't supposed to be able to be building up as the terms of peace from the First World War. And as he built this nationalistic pride into the German people, to the point where he used some of Martin Luther's writings later in his life to turn them against the Jews, to the point where they killed millions and millions of Jews. They mistreated millions and millions of Jews inside German cities and inside different cities where the German people saw what was happening and turned a blind eye to it. And we always look back and say, how could that atrocity ever happen? It started by Adolf Hitler using nationalistic pride to be anti-gospel. And people who claimed to be Christians, again, this is where the leading theologians of the world were at the time, bought into it. And they allowed nationalistic pride to cover up a gospel-mindedness. We have to be so careful that we do not allow nationalistic pride to run over what the gospel intended. And I'll finish with this. A gospel-centered life is a life that doesn't seek comfort in worldly standards, but is rather a self-sacrificing minister of rec reconciliation wherever God leads them. We have no idea what God has for us. We have no idea what God has for us when we walk out these doors. We have no idea what God has for us and who he's going to bring into our path this week. But just know, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, then you are a minister of reconciliation to live out the love, the joy, the peace, the forgiveness that comes through knowing Christ. So this week in your interactions with coworkers, family members, neighbors, people that cut you off in traffic, 
Remember, you are a minister of reconciliation wherever God leads you. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that you have given us. Lord, I also thank you for the challenges that you have brought to us that aren't always easy, that go against everything that we are taught by culture, that go against everything that we have been taught are okay. But Lord, I'm also so thankful that you give us the strength because in our own human, in our own humanity, we will always let our weaknesses prevail. But because you are more powerful than sin and you are more powerful than death, and there is nothing in this world that compares with you, and it is your power through the Holy Spirit that guides us. Lord, I pray that we rely on your Holy Spirit to work inside of us so that Satan does not get victories in our life. So Lord, I pray for all of us that we would leave a changed people for your glory. That we would leave here not because we want to change for our betterment, not because we're seeking our own privilege, but Lord, we are seeking to bring glory to you in all things. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.